This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode features discussion of torture, violence, death, and abuse that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. On a chilly day in November 1996, thousands of prisoners gathered before wooden gallows in a wheat field in North Korea. Uniformed guards pushed through the crowd, dragging a thin, weary prisoner, 14-year-old Shin Dong-hyuk. He was going to watch this from the front row, whether he wanted to or not. He watched as two convicts were led toward the gallows. A skeletal young man, barely strong enough to walk, and a middle-aged woman badly swollen from beatings. As they drew closer, Shin recognized them. His mother and his older brother. A soldier read the indictment. Shin barely heard any of it, except the last sentence. Chang Hye Kong and Shin Ha Kun, enemies of the people, are sentenced to death. As the guards tied the noose around Shin's mother's neck, she stared right at him, trying to meet his eye. He looked away. Shin didn't feel any sorrow. He thought his mother deserved to die. In fact, he was the one who turned them in. They'd broken the labor camp's first law. Do not try to escape. Anyone caught escaping will be shot immediately. Welcome to Survival on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our first of two episodes on Shin Dong Hyuk, the only person to ever escape from North Korea's Kechun internment camp. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. What would you do to stay alive? Would you cut off your own arm? Drink your own urine? Cannibalize your own family? When the stakes are life and death, you might be surprised at the lengths you'd go to save yourself. Human beings can withstand an incredible amount of physical and emotional trauma without breaking. But even after making it to safety, those experiences can leave scars that take a lifetime to heal, if they ever heal at all. Each week, we'll look through the eyes of some of the world's most resilient survivors as their self-preservation instincts are pushed to the limit. As Irma walks us through the story, I'll delve deeper into the strategies they use to survive. We'll also look at the psychological effects of living through a traumatic event, months, years, or decades down the road. Now, let's turn back to the story of North Korean defector Shin Dong-hyuk. There are 10 rules at North Korea's Kechun internment camp. Number one, do not try to escape. Anyone caught escaping will be shot immediately. Number two, anyone who fails to secure permission from a guard for a meeting of more than two prisoners will be shot immediately. Number three, anyone found stealing will be shot immediately. Number four, Anyone who fails to demonstrate total compliance with the guard's instructions will be shot immediately. Number five, anyone who provides cover for or protects a fugitive will be shot immediately. Number six, prisoners must watch each other and report any suspicious behavior. Number seven, prisoners who neglect their work quota or fail to complete it will be shot immediately. Number eight, should sexual physical contact occur without prior approval, the perpetrators will be shot immediately. Number nine, prisoners must genuinely repent of their errors. Anyone who does not acknowledge his sins and instead denies them or carries a deviant opinion of them will be shot immediately. And lastly, number 10, Prisoners who violate the laws and regulations of the camp will be shot immediately. All prisoners must truly consider the guards as their teachers and yield themselves through toil and discipline to washing away their past errors. According to a 2014 UN Commission of Inquiry, there are an estimated 120,000 people currently imprisoned in North Korea's internment camps. At Kechun Internment Camp, commonly known as Camp 14, political prisoners, their children, and their children's children are worked to death with no possibility of release. Camp 14 was opened in 1959, six years after the end of the Korean War, and it's still open in 2019. According to a report by the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, the camp is around 30 miles long and 19 miles wide, 
and surrounded by steep mountains, a 10-foot high-voltage fence, and soldiers armed with automatic weapons. Only one person has ever escaped, Shin Dong-hyuk. He was born in Camp 14 in either 1980 or 1982. Shin's entire family was sentenced to a lifetime of hard labor because his uncle had defected to South Korea years before he was even born. In the midst of food shortages, torture, abuse, and routine executions, every day in Camp 14 was a struggle to survive. In the summer of 2004, eight years after his mother and brother's execution, Shin Dong-hyuk hunched over a cast-iron sewing machine in a factory repair room. It was nearly midnight. His shift should have been over already, but the team hadn't met their quota, so they all had to stay an extra two hours. The superintendent called it bitter humiliation work. Shin's fingers ached. A few years ago, the guards had punished him by prying his fingernails off one by one and smashing his middle finger so hard it was completely torn off at the joint. And then, almost to taunt him, they'd assigned him to a work detail repairing sewing machines, maneuvering tiny metal gears by hand for 14 or more hours a day. At least he was still young. Either 21 or 23, he wasn't sure. By age 40, most prisoners are hunched and brittle from malnutrition. By 50, they're usually dead. Finally, the clock struck 12. Shin and the other three repairmen headed back to their dormitory in the next building over. Shin's stomach growled as he lay down on the patch of floor he called a bed. He hadn't eaten since dinner in the early evening, which was just a small bowl of lukewarm cabbage soup. Careful not to be overheard, one of the other repairmen whispered an idea. There was a vegetable garden behind the factory, and there was no moon that night. If they were quiet, they could probably pull off a heist without getting caught. Of course, they'd be breaking rule number three, which banned stealing at the risk of execution. Shin had memorized the camp's 10 laws as a child. He'd lived in the labor camp since birth, and this was the only sense of right and wrong he'd ever learned. Living is good, dying is bad. For the most part, living meant following the rules. But in reality, the executions were only enforced sporadically. A few prisoners were executed on a regular basis as an example to the others. But if they killed every person who broke a minor rule, the government would lose its entire workforce of slave laborers. Chances were, if they were caught stealing, they'd only be punished with a beating. Starvation was a much more pressing threat than execution. Shin was so gaunt, pain radiated through his bones when he lied down on the floor to sleep. His muscles ached from the long days of hauling cast iron sewing machines up the stairs on his back. And he was so hungry, it felt like his stomach was eating itself. Even if they were caught and executed, a gunshot to the head is less painful than a slow death from starvation. 
Shin and his three friends all agreed it was a risk worth taking. The young men snuck out of the dormitory and crept along the edge of the building. It was pitch dark and starting to rain. The drizzle disguised the sound of their movements as they stumbled through the maze of buildings. At any turn, they might run headfirst into a guard or, just as bad, another prisoner who might snitch on them. But as Shin's eyes adjusted to the darkness, he saw it up ahead, the garden. They filled their arms with anything they could carry, cucumbers, radishes, eggplants, delicacies the prisoners were never allowed to eat. When they got back to their room, they sat on the floor and feasted. For the first time in a long time, Shin went to sleep with a full belly. As soon as they got to the factory the next morning, Shin and his three accomplices were called into the superintendent's office. The superintendent was the only military guard at the factory. The rest of the foremen and managers were prisoners who'd been promoted for their obedience and their physical imposingness. They weren't any kinder than the soldiers. In fact, they were even more brutal. But the superintendent was the only one who was armed and the only one with the authority to dole out serious punishment. Shin and his friends lined up before the desk, frozen with fear. Shin immediately knew which one of them had snitched. Kang Man Bok. Shin could tell just from the look on his face. Sure enough, the superintendent told Kong to go back to work. He left quietly, avoiding Shin's eyes. Then the superintendent turned to the other three. He whacked them each on the head with the club a few times, told them their food rations would be cut in half for the next two weeks, and sent them back to the factory. Shin understood what Kong had done. After all, he was a snitch too. But he didn't know how to forgive him. As Shin later put it, in their world, to ask for forgiveness was only to beg not to be punished. A couple months later, in October 2004, Shin was called back to the superintendent's office. This time, he hadn't done anything wrong, not personally, but he still had to make up for his mother and brother's offense eight years ago. Shin was the one who'd reported his mother and brother's escape plan to the guards. He'd done exactly what he was supposed to do, but it didn't win him any favors. Instead, he had to do more penance to prove he wasn't a traitor like the rest of his family. There was a new prisoner arriving at the factory, a man named Park Young Chul. He was a very important man with close ties to the North Korean government. He'd lived in the Soviet Union and East Germany. And, according to the superintendent, he hadn't confessed the full extent of his crimes. Shin's job was to train Park in the art of sewing machine maintenance. His second, unofficial task was to report back on anything interesting Park had to say about his past. Shin immediately agreed. He was already expected to inform on the other prisoners. And if he found out anything scandalous, he might even be rewarded with extra food rations. 
Park Yong Cho arrived at the factory the next morning. He was a short, stocky man of about 50 years of age, with a head of snowy white hair. He was dignified without being arrogant. When Shin introduced himself, Park even replied using the honorific. In Korean, honorific verb endings signify that the person being spoken to is superior to the person speaking, similar to ending a sentence with sir or ma'am. Park used it as a sign of respect, since Shin was technically the teacher. But Park was twice his age and clearly higher in the social hierarchy. Shin found it a little embarrassing. Shin led Park around the floor, explaining the ins and outs of the job. There were one or two thousand seamstresses at the factory. Each repairman was responsible for about 50 of them. As Shin spoke, Park paid close attention, nodding along politely, almost too politely. By the tail end of a 14-hour shift, the honorific usage was no longer awkward, it was just irritating. The saving grace was that Park didn't speak much at all. After four weeks, Shin hadn't learned anything useful. His dream of extra food was slipping away. And then, one quiet day, when they were alone in the repair room, Park asked Shin, Where is your home, sir? Shin was caught off guard. It was the first personal question Park had ever asked him. All he could say was, my home is here. Park replied without being asked, I'm from Pyongyang, sir. Shin's patience finally snapped. He said, I'm younger than you. Please drop the honorific with me. Park said, I will. They went back to working in silence. After a moment, Shin turned back to Park and asked, Where's Pyongyang? Park was intrigued. Everyone in North Korea knew about the capital city, except, apparently, the ones who'd spent their entire lives in labor camps. Park explained that Pyongyang was where all the government officials lived. He'd lived there, too, as the head of an elite Taekwondo gym. Park rested his hand on a sewing machine and said, quote, With this hand, I shook Kim Jong-il's hand. That meant little to Shin. He was vaguely aware of the dear leader, Kim Jong-il, but the prisoners at Camp 14 weren't bombarded with the usual propaganda. There was no point in brainwashing them. They'd never be leaving the camp alive anyway. From then on, Park became the teacher. He taught Shin that different countries have different forms of money. Then he taught Shin what money was. He explained what cell phones were, how gravity worked, why South Korea had it better than the North. Shin didn't really care about any of this. He barely understood where South Korea was, much less how their economy worked. What interested him were the stories about food. Park had lived all over the world, and he regaled Shin with tales of stir-fried pork in China, sausage in Germany, chicken Kiev in Russia. The only meat Shin ever ate was from rats he caught around the factory, ripped open and devoured raw. Park tried to teach Shin about proper cooking procedures, too. 
He wouldn't let him eat the rats until they found a furnace to roast them over. But the more Shin heard about the food on the outside, the more unbearable his hunger felt. His growling stomach kept him up all night, while his mind swam with visions of all-you-can-eat buffets and warm bowls of rice. For the first time, he had something to dream about. One of those nights, Shin came to a decision. He wasn't going to snitch on Park. If Shin told the superintendent everything he'd learned, he might be rewarded with an extra bowl of soup. But he would lose Park's stories, which were the only thing he had to look forward to. Without that seed of hope, there was no reason to survive. When Shin was called back to the superintendent's office a few weeks later, he looked him right in the eye and said Park wasn't talking. The superintendent seemed to believe him. He sent Shin back to work and told him to keep pressing. Every week, Shin reported back and told his supervisor the same thing. Park had nothing to say. It worked for a while. But by protecting his new friend, Shin may have sealed his own fate. It might have been his refusal to snitch on Park. Or maybe it was punishment for something one of his distant family members had done. It could have been for the time he was caught stealing from the garden, or the many times his shift didn't meet its production quota, or any other offense, real or imagined. But whatever he did, in December of 2004, Shin found out that his own execution would be happening in two months. Coming up, we'll follow Shin's new survival strategy, escape. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Shin Dong-hyuk had tried to escape twice before. The first time was in 1999, right after he'd finished secondary school. And three years after, he reported his own mother and brother's escape plan to the guards. Shin's motives for snitching on his family weren't entirely noble. Shin had always hated his mother for beating him, for forgetting about his birthday, for giving birth to him in a prison camp in the first place. Familial bonds were impossible to form in a place like this. More than anything, Shin had seen his mother as competition for food. All of Shin's instincts were based on survival, even if it meant hurting others in the process. So when he overheard his mother and brother talking about escaping in 1996, he played the dutiful prisoner and reported them, ensuring they'd both be executed and he wouldn't be implicated in their plot. And then, when the opportunity presented itself three years later, he abandoned his moral high ground and planned his own escape. We should note that Shin was born in Camp 14, 
but when he was a child, his area was absorbed into the neighboring Camp 18, where security was a little bit lighter. There was still a 10-foot high-voltage fence surrounding the perimeter, but there were less guards patrolling it. Getting out was difficult, but possible. When he was somewhere between 16 and 18, Shin's father gave him a letter and told him to take it to his aunt's house in Moonduck County, about 30 miles away. Shin made a run for it, squeezed through the cracks in the electric fence, and wandered the mountains for two weeks until he found his aunt's house. When he got there, the police were already waiting for him. Shin was taken back to Camp 18, then to a detention center within the prison camp, where conditions were even worse. The enforcement of executions for rule breakers is scattershot, and for whatever reason, Shin's life was spared. His second escape came about a year and a half later, in late 2000. This time, he made it all the way across the border into China, but China has an inflexible policy of sending North Korean defectors back where they came from. Shin only managed to hide out there for a few months before the police found him and hauled him back to North Korea. As punishment, he spent six months being brutally tortured in an underground prison. He was then taken to Camp 14, where security was much harsher. Some prisoners in Camp 18 were given permission, on rare occasion, to leave the camp for errands or brief furloughs. The perimeter of Camp 14, on the other hand, was absolutely sealed. No one was allowed to leave under any circumstances. Legions of soldiers patrolled the grounds with automatic weapons at the ready, as if they were securing a war zone. One North Korean defector who'd spent time in Camp 14 described the conditions as so severe that he could not even think of the possibility of escaping. In fact, no one had ever escaped from Camp 14 and lived to tell the tale. With his transfer, Shin lost his last hope of escaping. He also lost all contact with his last remaining family member, his father, who was still back in Camp 18. Shin passed the next four years in numbness, keeping his head down and following the rules, for the most part. But his minor infractions added up, and by December 2004, Shin finally ran out of chances to redeem himself. He heard from another prisoner that he was scheduled to be executed in February. There was only one way to survive this. If there was anyone Shin could trust for help, it was Park Young Chul. Less than two months earlier, Shin had been assigned to spy on the new prisoner. But now, his conditioned paranoia had gotten the better of him, and he worried that Park might have been sent to spy on him, too. After days of debate, Shin finally whispered his plan. He was thinking about escaping. He knew the camp like the back of his hand. Park knew what lay on the other side of the fence. Together, they might actually be able to pull it off. Park immediately agreed. 
the plan took shape quickly. All they had to do was wait for an opportunity to get close to the fence without arousing suspicion. Shin had climbed through the high-voltage fence surrounding Camp 18 not once but twice, and he'd only felt a slight sting. The fence around Camp 14 looked exactly the same, so they'd probably be fine. If any guards did catch them at the fence, Park knew Taekwondo. He could take them down before they got a chance to fire their automatic weapons. With this plan, Shin guessed, rather optimistically, that they had a 9 in 10 chance of making it over the fence and a 1 in 10 chance of getting shot. Once they made it out of the camp, they'd wander the mountains until they found their way to the Chinese border. Neither of them were sure how to get there, but once they figured it out, Shin knew from experience how to bribe the North Korean soldiers into letting them cross. The Chinese police weren't so easily corrupted. As we said before, China has an inflexible policy of sending North Korean defectors back where they came from. Shin and Park would have to lay low until they could find a way to get to South Korea, where they'd automatically be granted citizenship. Luckily, Park had an uncle in China. He'd give them a place to stay and help them arrange fake passports and plane tickets to South Korea. Obviously, this plan was absurd. Not a single person had ever escaped from Camp 14. But if Shin didn't at least try, he'd be executed in two months anyway. He kept his thoughts on the possibility, however slim, that he'd make it out alive. Every night, Shin still went to bed dreaming of endless bowls of rice and meat. But now, these dreams didn't taunt him. They pushed him forward. In late December, the opportunity finally came. Shin and Park were told that the factory would be closed on January 1st and 2nd for the New Year's holiday. This didn't mean the prisoners got a day off. But it did mean that on January 2nd, the repairmen would be assigned to a different work detail, chopping trees at the far edge of the camp, right next to the fence. The average temperature in North Korea in January is between 14 and 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Shin's only clothes were one thin shirt and one pair of hole-riddled pants. If he was going to weather the elements, he needed warmer clothing. One of the prisoners on Shin's dormitory floor worked as a garment cutter. This gave him access to scraps of fabric, which he'd used to secretly craft a second set of winter clothes. He layered them on top of his old, worn clothes for extra warmth on frigid days. Shin simply waited until the garment cutter was gone stole his extra set of clothes, and hid them until it was time to escape. Of course, this meant the other man would go cold. But from Shin's perspective, the garment cutter didn't deserve the extra clothes any more than he did. In these circumstances, self-preservation overpowered empathy. As Shin later said, it is not just the soldiers who beat us. It is the prisoners themselves who are not kind to each other. There is no sense of community. I am one of those mean prisoners. 
On the morning of January 2nd, 2005, Shin got dressed, layering his new stolen clothes over his own ragged set of clothes. The factory foreman rounded up Shin, Park, and a couple dozen other prisoners and led them out into the woods. It was a cold, windy morning. The sun was almost blinding as it reflected off the snow. Shin didn't see any guards in sight. It was just the work crew and their fellow prisoner foreman, who was unarmed. When they reached the top of the mountain ridge, the foreman passed out axes and told them to get to work. Just past the trees, Shin saw the 10-foot high-voltage fence that separated him from freedom. Coming up, Shin and Park will finally put their escape plan into action. Now, back to the story. On January 2nd, 2005, Shin Dong Hyuk and his work crew trekked up the mountain ridge at the edge of Camp 14. If all went according to plan, it would be the last day of slave labor Shin ever had to endure. As Shin chopped his way through the forest, he made his way closer to the fence. It was the first time he'd seen it at so close a distance. There were seven or eight strands of electric barbed wire spaced about a foot apart. This wasn't a typical electric fence meant to scare off intruders or corral cattle. It was designed to kill anyone who touched it. On the other side of the fence, there was a steep wooded slope, not too steep to walk down, or so he hoped. The surface of the snow had frozen into ice, and Shin could barely walk on level ground without slipping, never mind a steep mountainside. Through the trees, Shin saw two guards marching side by side along the fence. He looked away, turned to the nearest tree, and lopped off a branch. As the footsteps faded into the distance, Shin started counting to himself, timing the interval until the next round of guards marched past. There was a long and regular gap between each patrol, and since the foreman supervising their crew was a prisoner himself, not a soldier, he was unarmed. If Shin timed it right, he and Park could slip through the fence halfway between the patrol rounds when there was no one around to shoot them. As the day wore on, Shin inched closer and closer to the fence. At a safe distance away, he saw Park doing the same. The plan was to wait until the sun started to set so they'd have the cover of darkness on their side. Surprisingly, Shin wasn't nervous at all. What was there to fear? Whatever lay on the other side of the fence, it couldn't possibly be worse than what he endured every day inside the camp. By late afternoon, the sun was getting low. Shin squinted back at the other prisoners. No one had noticed him getting closer to the fence. No one seemed to notice the fence at all. They were so resigned to their fate, they didn't even consider the possibility of escape. The complete absence of hope for the future helped the prisoners cope with their situation. Shin had been like that too, until recently. 
only now did he realize that surrendering to their dire circumstances wasn't surviving. It was just waiting around to die. By about 4 p.m., when dusk was approaching, Shin was just yards away from the fence. He looked through the trees and locked eyes with Park. As soon as the patrolling guards passed by, Park came closer. He looked distracted, afraid. He whispered, I don't know if I can do this. Can't we try it some other time? Shin was dumbstruck. He replied, if we don't do it now, there won't be another chance. The guards had passed. The sun was setting. Shin didn't feel any fear. He grabbed Park's hand and yelled, let's run. After a second or two, Park stopped resisting. Both men sprinted through the trees. Just a few yards away from the fence, Shin slipped on a patch of ice. As he struggled up, Park kept running all the way to the fence. He knelt down and squeezed headfirst through the two lowest wires. Sparks flew. Shin looked up and saw Park convulsing. He smelled flesh burning. Then Park stopped moving. He was dead. Shin wouldn't have known this, but water is conducive to electricity. The ground was covered in snow, and by extension, so were Park's clothes. The fence may not have hurt Shin before, but under these conditions, the same amount of electricity could be fatal. Park's limp body pulled down the bottommost wire, creating a gap just big enough for Shin to slide through, Freedom was just on the other side. Shin didn't hesitate. He lowered himself over his friend's body and stuck his head through the fence. Shin wouldn't have known this either, but Park's body was grounding the fence's electricity. This made it possible for Shin to pass through relatively unharmed. Shin kept his body low, sliding right over Park's back. The smell of singed flesh was overwhelming. He ducked his head under the wire, then slithered a little further. He felt the current coursing through his body like a million needles stabbing into his skin. But he was almost free. Then his legs slipped and hit the wire directly. The electric jolt was so sudden, he didn't even feel it until it was too late. He pulled himself through, until the stinging finally stopped. The snow cooled his skin, but the burning went deeper than that, down to the bone. He didn't have time to think about it. He had to run before anyone noticed he was gone. Shin looked around. He was at the top of a 1,200-foot mountain, surrounded by steep, tree-covered slopes. The sun was just about to disappear on the horizon. It was 10 degrees Fahrenheit, and his ticket to South Korea was lying dead on the barbed wire behind him. Crossing the fence was only the first step in Shin's journey to freedom, and it may have been the easiest step. 
If the guards caught him now, after escaping for the third time, he wouldn't make it back to Camp 14 alive. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week to continue Shin Dong-hyuk's escape from North Korea. Shin's story was covered at length in Blaine Hardin's book, Escape from Camp 14, One Man's Remarkable Odyssey from North Korea to Freedom in the West. You can find other podcast shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs>